A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hacks. Zach is very excited today because he's found us a fabulous guest, haven't you? I absolutely have. If folks were living under a rock uh, back in March, then perhaps they didn't notice all the news headlines and the Twitter memes that went out when a massive container ship got wedged sideways in the Suez Canal. But if folks think that that's a crisis, that's nothing compared to what we're discussing today. We're bringing you a proper Suez crisis, specifically the one from 1956. Joining us to make sense of it all is Adrian Smith, Emeritus Professor of Modern History at the University of Southampton, who's written a number of books including on World War I fighter pilot Mick Mangan, on Lord Mountbatten, and the history of sport. In 2018, he published an authorised biography of the aviation pioneer Sir Richard Ferry, and last year he published Slouching Towards Big Pink, essays on Bob Dylan and the band Woody Guthrie and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's also my former lecturer from Southampton and is without question the most enthused individual that I've ever had the privilege to meet. <laughs> Adrian, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Uh, fine, thanks, Zach. And thank you very much to you and I for, for inviting me on. Yeah. I can't, you know, I cannot believe that what with the McManic connection, although I'm more of a McCudden girl, and the Mountbatten's um, and everything, that we have not crossed paths before. Right, well, I'm, I'm impressed that you're a, a McCudden girl, yeah. Um, My first ever TV appearance was Falling Aces about Manic and McCudden. So right, well, I'm on that. Uh, do you know yeah. we probably both? Did you go to the screening at the Royal Aero Club? I did, yeah, with my. Yeah, so did I. Guy. I was hiding at the back with Peter Hart in case oh, anyone right. asked any technical aeroplane questions. Oh, oh and Josh right. Levine. We were slouching in our chairs. I, that's very strange because I was thinking, oh, look, wait for a minute. I think we we met that night. We went I to the pub. I, didn't I, we? I now have a clear recollection of the conversation that we had. After the screening. Oh, I was a baby. But I think we all adjourned to the pub. And uh, Peter Hart was obsessed with my boyfriend at the time's iPhone because it could give him cricket scores. Oh, right. Well, I didn't go to the pub. (laughs) <laughs> well, I can remember sort of sipping warm white wine and uh, and you and I having a conversation. Fabulous. Yeah. God. yeah. Brilliant. Uh, Zach is kind of looking it. like, what have I started getting these two together? He had no idea right. this we must get back was to going to appear. We must get back to soon. Yeah. <laughs> See, I open by saying that Adrian is the most enthused in person that I've ever met. And this is exactly what I mean. You can just talk about anything historically related and suddenly you get a tour de force like this. But as you say, we should take it back to Suez. Let's start by giving people a sense of the background. How does the Suez Canal and particularly the Franco-British-owned Suez Canal Company come into being? Well, the the Suez Canal is essentially a French initiative uh, and it's very much a consequence of the move in the the 19th century from uh, sail to steam. So it only really makes sense when um, when you've got an alternative to wind uh, for powering for powering ships and of course it's it's so we're in the middle of the 19th century it's a great age of engineering um uh and a french uh engineer uh called uh, ferdinand de lesseps um puts forward this proposal for um uh, linking the mediterranean and the red sea uh and um, the distance is actually very short. I mean, if you, as the crow flies, it's only about 120 miles. But um, the, the, the the canal itself, as it as it's um, constructed, uh, is actually longer than that because um, the advantage that um, uh, that uh, the French engineers and um, the Egyptian workforce had was that there are a number of lakes, of which the biggest lakes, the the, 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 bitter, the, the bitter lakes between the two seas. So, so basically you were linking up lakes and then um, the, 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 the canal made up the, the, the rest of the, of the passageway. And it took 10 years because you can imagine that there's only limited technology available at the time. Uh, so heavily reliant on, uh, on uh, um, poor, poorly paid uh, labour. So it's very much a French-Egyptian 
initiative in the fir- in the first instance uh, and it's completed by 1869 then the first of a succession of um uh projects to modernize and improve the the canal takes place in 1876 and by that time the british have become involved because um uh, the year before 1875 um essentially the egyptian government went bust um and a way of which they could generate revenue was to sell their share in the uh suez canal company so uh, uh, it's often overlooked the fact that initially it was a it was a Franco-Egyptian enterprise, but it's much better known then as uh, as a as a Franco-English or Anglo-French um, uh, company, which is how then it through the decades you know it goes all the way down to to the um, to to the nineteen uh, uh, the nineteen fifties. And just just looking ahead beyond the crisis that we're going to talk about. Um, when the canal's been blocked prior to last week was in 56, 57, and that's, as I say, topic of today's conversation, but also then in, uh, the, from the period 1967, uh, the time of the um, six day war between Israel and surrounding Arab countries, particularly Egypt, and uh, through, all the way through to 1975. Um, and it was at that point that the, that um, a combination of modernization, further modernization of the of the canal and, and final unblocking of the canal enabled it to 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 reopen. And also had to be seen against the backdrop of an improvement in um, in uh, uh, relate growing improvement between improvement between the Egyptians and the Israelis. But prior to that. There, have, of course, have been a, a further conflict, further war in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And what that highlighted was the way in which historically the Suez Canal could act as a barrier because um, that the the, uh, the Israelis stormed it. And I think they, my memory says right, they did actually cross the canal, but then were rebuffed in, 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 uh, in 73. Um, and the previous occasion on which it had acted effectively as a barrier was back during the First World War, um, between 1914 through to uh, 1916, 1917, when you had the British in Egypt and you had the, the enemy, the Ottoman forces, the other side, the other side of the canal, and then eventually the British in this massive logistical exercise uh, under General Allenby crossed the Suez Canal and then they begin their advance north into Palestine and all the way up and you see eventual uh, de- de- defeat of, of, of the Turks. So there's an awful lot of, of, of history wrapped up in, in, the, Suez, in the Suez Canal. Uh, a lot of it mi- linked to, to 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 conflict and it's a particular conflict obviously that we want to to focus on today absolutely before we do though let's just outline there are some incredible personalities in this story um (laughs) right okay dicky who i always think only doesn't look quite as awful as he may well have been because he's usually standing next to the duke of windsor um but his involvement in the crisis how does he get involved because a lot of people associate him either with his naval career um or being the last voice, Viceroy of India, um, and basically, I guess, what they've seen in the Crown. Yes, well, um, Ban's involved because he's the first Sea Lord, so he's Chief of the Naval Staff, uh, and he's been that for uh, just under uh, under a year at, at, at this point. Um, uh, and he's in a new, obviously, he's in an unusual position because of, you know, he has royal connect, close royal connections, um, and um, also because it's not the first time he's been a chief of staff because he, you know, he's, he's been uh, uh, chief of combined uh, operations in the war. Um, and then he was um, uh, su- supreme allied commander in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, and then he goes back to the Navy briefly to resume his naval career. So he goes back to a junior rank. And then, of course, most famously, he becomes the last viceroy of India. So he's viceroy of India and then he stays on in India after partition. Initially, he was 
He anticipated being governor general because don't forget at this point, they're not republics, pa Pakistan and India, they're still dominions, um, that uh, being governor general of both Pakistan and of India. But in fact, Jinnah, sort of seen as the founding father of Pakistan, becomes governor general of, uh, of, of Pakistan. But Mountbatten stays on for quite a sort of controversial year, much of it focused on the crisis in Kashmir until 1948. And it's at that point that he properly resumes his uh, his naval career um, and his great ambition is to become chief of, uh, of naval staff to become first sea lord which is what his father prince louis battenberg held uh, in 1914 um, and then famously was forced to resign because of anti-german sentiment here he is now his first sea lord uh, and um, at the same time as he's becoming uh, uh, head of the Navy, then um, there's a change of administration because, of course, Churchill resigns. And finally, belatedly, the great heir apparent, the Dauphin, who's been waiting for years and years and years to become prime minister, is Anthony Eden. And Eden, of course, along with the Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, these are the two pro key protagonists um, in, uh, in 1956. But Mountbatten's important because he's the chief of staff who he doesn't go public at the time. He certainly does later. But during this key period is in this unusual position where he's ultra professional, he prepares the Navy, he's heavily involved in the planning. He doesn't do anything to disrupt the operational efficiency of, of the Navy and, um, but, and, the, and the Marines. But he's actually opposed, um, fundamentally opposed to any military intervention because he thinks that it will have... Um, negative consequences across the Commonwealth, particularly in South Asia. And it will per turn out to be extraordinarily damaging for Britain in terms of international opinion. And that's why that's why he, you know, he's especially significant. And later, of course, because he's the great self-publicist, when he's talking about his various achievements and, you know, what he's done in the course of his life, and his career, he, he very often talks about Suez um, and um, he, as he always did, he, you know, he's he's continually rewriting history, telling a fresh story at which his um, uh, importance and his influence becomes that much greater every time. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's very much a mark of his retirement. And because of that, that fuels an antagonism between him and Eden. You go back before the first world. Sorry, I'm sorry. Before the second world war, Mountbatten's an anti-appeaser, um, and uh, and Eden, of course, is slightly half-hearted anti-appeaser after he resigns as foreign secretary. Uh, um, and uh, so they have this in common, and they actually, you know, they they got on pretty well. But this, you know, uh, 1956, the Suez crisis marks a break, um, and. Um, while Mountbatten afterwards always tries to claim that everybody gets on all right and he gets on fine with Eden, Eden loathed him. He absolutely loathed him. And even when Eden was dying um, in 1976, he died of cancer that later that year, when they met the Order of the Garter ceremony at, at, um, at Windsor and Mountbatten is trying to be emollient, then Eden is still basically telling him where to get off. You know, there's a, a, a extraordinarily sort of deep, passionate loathing. And of course, that's an aspect of Eden because there's someone else he had a deep, passionate loathing for. And that was the president of, the, of Egypt, Nasser. Well, tell us a little bit more then about Eden and Nasser and, and their individual personalities and experiences. Because as you say, Eden was for such a long time that heir apparent to Churchill. Um probably could have done with with Churchill resigning much sooner and therefore sort of had had his time as PM as opposed to what we actually got with, with Eden as PM so tell us a little bit more about that well let, let's start with Eden and then and then move to uh, to NASA um so uh Eden, very glamorous figure, and he's very successful at a, at a young age he looked great you know um and um 
uh, and he famously resigned in in February of 1938 over um, uh, various aspects of um, foreign policy as in effect controlled by Daniel Stewart, by Neville Chamberlain, just about um, relations, two things really, relations with the United States and relations with uh, fascist Italy and Mussolini. So that worked to his advantage in that, as I hinted at earlier, he was a slightly half-hearted um, uh, anti-appeaser, although he was surrounded by various backbenchers who were known as the Glamour Boys, most of whom were much more committed to opposing government foreign policy than Eden was. So, but anyway, he comes back into government um, uh, at the start of the Second World War, and then uh, in the Churchill coalition, soon he becomes, in December of 1940, he becomes foreign secretary again, so into his second period. Uh, and um, a, a sort of partnership of him and the permanent secretary of the foreign office, Alex, uh, Alexander Cadogan, um, are a formidable duo um, during the war. And Britain is blessed, really, in the, throughout the whole of the 1940s in having two outstanding foreign secretaries from both major parties, Eden, first of all, and then um, Ernest Bevin. And there is a continuity across the 50, across the 40s as well, because Eden is a sort of tacit supporter of, uh, of, of Bevin's sort of, you know, a role in the formation of NATO. So Eden stays out as a, is clearly um, still a high profile figure. He's regarded by almost everybody as being the natural heir to Churchill. Although Churchill, actually Churchill has his reservations, but he doesn't sort of air them except to his closest uh, confidants. But then, as you said, Eden comes, Churchill comes back to power, the Conservatives come back to power in the autumn of 1951, the Attlee government of 45-51. And, you know, Eden is just waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for, and Churchill, (laughs) even when Churchill has strokes and he's seriously ill and he's debilitating, it's hidden from the public, he doesn't go. Um, But what Eden does, meanwhile, is again prove his um, his worth as a foreign secretary. So 1954 is a really important year for Churchill, sorry, for Eden, for, for, for a variety of reasons I won't go into, but it, it confirms his credentials uh, as, as one of the great foreign secretaries of the 20th century, along with Bevin and Sir Edward Grey. Um, uh, but he's still waiting. But there's been one absolutely crucial development in this time. That whereas Eden had always come across as being fit, healthy, good-looking, youthful, um, uh, his health has deteriorated sharply. Um, and he's had to have a succession of operations, um, one of which goes spectacularly wrong, involving his bile duct and his bladder. Um, uh, and from then on, and that, that it takes place in, in America and he comes back and he's clearly not, uh, not well. And from then on, he becomes heavily dependent on a, on a whole host of uh, forms of medication. And he's not the same man. So physically he's not, and obviously um, mentally and emotionally he's not. He's a happier man in one respect, in that despite sadly the, the, the death of his son in 1945 in Burma, when Mountbatten was extraordinarily supportive and trying to find out what had happened to his son, um, that um, despite, the, the, despite the death of his son, he's married again, and he's married um, uh, now Clarissa Eden, so there's a further sort of Churchill connection, connection there um lady aiden who is still alive today so he's happier in terms of his of his marriage but his health has deteriorated markedly and he you know he always had quite a sharp temper and now boom he's really he's you know that, it just takes a trick boom he's away okay so that's that's um that's eden and eden when he was still foreign secretary um was in in the Middle East, and he went to Cairo, and he met the new president, the the member of the sort of military conspirators, Kamjonta, which had um, uh, overseen the um, deposition of King Farouk and the end of the monarchy and Egypt becoming a republic. And they met in, in nineteen. 54, 55, I can't remember. But anyway, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. 
<laughs> and so so these two men really were left after their, their one encounter, even more antagonistic towards each other. Um, but for Eden, Eden had to make um, the uh, arrangements that had been uh, uh, that had been um, uh, um, agreed with Egypt and had been turned into a treaty about handing over control of the Suez Canal. He had to make it work. So just to recap, just very slightly, what um, uh, when he was foreign secretary, much to, to Churchill's you know uh, quiet opposition, um, he had uh, Eden had negotiated a treaty with the new regime in Egypt, which handed over control of the Suez Canal area, the, all the area around it, territorial, which had been controlled by the British. So the British, after the Second World War, moved out of, you know, obviously once the war was over, they didn't need to have any sort of you know, huge military presence within the rest of Egypt, well, they did have in, in Libya. And so they concentrated all the force, a large number of, of, of troops in the, in the canal zone. And so Eden had negotiated to withdraw the troops um, and that there was a, a long-term um, agreement over um, continuing Anglo-French control of the canal. One, one thing, this is really pertinent to how Eden behaves in 1956, a large number of conservative backbenchers are deeply antagonistic to this and they know that Churchill is as well. So it's a bit like when the Conservatives tacitly su uh, support um, Indian independence in, in, um, in 1947. A whole host of them are, including Churchill, really are opposed to it. It's the same thing with what they see as a further withdrawal from empire, from the, the, the canal zone. So here we have the situation by, um, uh, by, by uh, 1956, where we have a new prime minister, under considerable pressure um, at home, even after, even though he's only been in office for a short space of time, because the economy's in trouble as well, his backbenchers are unhappy. And then in Egypt, we have um, a, a, a nationalist, pan Arab um, uh, uh, leader in NASA who's um, keen to um, encourage Arab nationalism across the whole of the Middle East and North Africa, and to take actions which show that Egypt will be the leader of that national, of those nationalist forces. And the final thing to say on this is a manifestation of that is the support that the Egyptians are giving to the Front de Libération Nationale. Right? So in Algeria, the FLN since 1954 has been conducting a war of independence it's out in the, the desert, in the bled, but also then and, um, uh, in 55, 56 in, uh, um, in, in Algiers itself. Um, so there's a, this war is becoming ever more violent, ever more uh, bloody. Um, and the French are determined to win because, of course, they've been forced out of Indochina. So these are tough, ruthless brutal elite forces, Paris particularly, and French Foreign Legion, who are fighting in Algeria, and the Egyptians are supporting the, the enemy of the French, the Front de Libération Nationale, and that feeds into the Suez Crisis. So the crisis itself begins with NASA taking the decision to nationalise the canal company. In practice, how does that work? Because this is a privately owned company, lots of French investors, the British government has a stake, and there's already been an agreement that the company would be handed back to the Egyptian government in 1968. So how do we get here? And is this a bit of a pirate-esque move by NASA? Well, <laughs> well um, NASA, it's brilliantly done um, uh, that... that, that um, uh, in July, in July 1956, um, and uh, it's actually captured quite well in the Crown um, uh, that it, it, NASA gives a speech, um, and there's a key phrase in the speech which is a trigger for Egyptian forces to take over control. Um, so it's done um, incredibly smoothly, uh, and the British learned it late at night um, in in Downing Street, and Eden summons the chiefs of staff and 
that's a, that's a story you might want to pursue in a moment. But in terms of the actual uh, NASA's justification, he cla- he pointed to the fact that um, uh, that there were uh, plenty of examples around the world, not least in Britain after the Second World War, of governments um, uh, taking ownership of public a public utility, and in this case, it was the Suez Canal, um, and um, he. Uh, uh, argued that there would be compensation for the Anglo-French company, that um, that the canal would continue to be run uh, efficiently. But now the considerable fees that were generated from ships passing through the canal would 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 help uh, support the Egyptian economy and improve the standard of living and quality of life of, ordin- of ordinary Egyptians. Um, and he he uh, in the weeks that passed, he. Um, he played the game brilliantly. Um, so he played for time. And also, you know, he was quite happy to go through all sorts of international mechanisms for, for seeking some sort of settlement. Right. So he the whole time he sort of tried to portray himself as, if you like, the man of peace, as opposed to Eden and the French Prime Minister Mollet, who are already taking steps, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, to, 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 to create you know, military, uh, a task force for possible military event, intervention. NASA sort of play, plays all this down. I'm sure this can all be settled. Um, and, um, and he knows that the longer it goes on, the harder it will be for the British and the French to take any action, because in effect, it's become a, a fait accompli. And that, of course, is how, how it panned out, so playing for time. And he also knew that the longer it went on, then the further it got into the year, if you managed to get through the summer and still nothing had happened, then the more it got towards the end of the year, the more um, you know weather conditions would uh, would deteriorate. The harder it would be to launch a military operation that would take you through into the next year. And you know, he was he was there really. So and of course the French and the British were well aware of the fact that he was play, playing for time. But because he had he had. Um, uh, the advantage of a clear shift of mood that was taking place globally in the 1950s, um, uh, that these sort of profound um, nationalist anti-colonial forces that were emerging and were particularly evident in the General Assembly of the, Na- of, of the United Nations, uh, and which were, surprising though it might seem, which had been uh, historically encouraged by the United States especially while Roosevelt was still alive, of course. Um, and, you know, we got the Atlantic Charter and all this. So, so, these are the, so the Americans, um, uh, as the Cold War is intensifying, uh, don't want to find themselves exposed in terms of being accused by the Russians of clearly of propping up colonialist, uh, uh, overtly colonialist forces. You know, that's one reason why they, they, they give military support to the French, but there's no way in which they would have intervened in, in, in Indochina. So, so when it comes to Egypt, um, and what we haven't mentioned, of course, up to this point is oil as well, that you know, they don't want to antagonise the British um, have their uh, oil interests. The, the Americans have their oil interests, particularly in Saudi Arabia. You know, the, the, so the Americans, they don't want to antagonise their partners like the Saudis. Um, and at the same time, they don't want to be seen as, pro- as I say, propping up anti-colonial forces. So NASA knows this. The Egyptians know this. They're pretty shrewd. And they know that the Americans aren't going to intervene. Right. Um, so that's another reason for playing for time. So you've got this situation in the summer of 1956 where they, you know, whenever anything's proposed or, you know, uh, various um, uh, uh, sort of diplomatic initiatives, the Egyptians play along with it. But at the same time, highly publicised, the British and the French are engaged in putting together a task force in the Mediterranean, which potentially could intervene. But of course, the very fact that they're doing that in terms of international opinion, outside of sort of, you know, loyal sort of supporters like the Australians and the New Zealands, doesn't doesn't reflect well. It doesn't reflect well inside the Commonwealth with, say, the Indians and the Pakistanis. So that's the scenario that you've you've got. Back briefly to Mountbatten, Mountbatten, on the night of that the chiefs of staff gather 
in Downing Street suggests rapid intervention, a coup de main, um, that, you know, the, 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 the Royal Marines would, would take port side and, you know, that there would be, uh, there, there would be a beachhead uh, created, literally a beachhead created, um, and that then, then, then there could be further uh, intervention. And, and the other chiefs of staff, including very, a very significant figure, Gerald Templer, who was, had made his reputation in Malaya, turned around and, because the first thing the, 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 the army thinks of is Arnhem, and he said, no, no, no way, Ducky, Ducky, no way. And and Eden says, why not? He says, and the, and the RAF and the and the army say it's a crazy idea that, and it would take at least six weeks for us to put together any sort of force that could relieve any 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 you know advance guard inside in, at the north of part of the Suez Canal. And and Mountbatten turns round and says, yeah, you're absolutely right. No, they're right. They're right. You know. But of course, over the years subsequently, um, he'd tell all sorts of different stories about that. But but in essence, by the end of the evening, so we're into the sort of early hours of the next day with various military officials and diplomats and things. Basically, the, Brit- the British have decided that they've got to talk to the French. The French send someone over almost immediately, very senior delegation, that they've got to put together a task, a, a task force with the French um, and that they've got to threaten the Egyptians that if they don't play game, then, you know, then steps will be taken for military intervention. And as I say, meanwhile, the Egyptians have worked out, let them carry on, let them carry on. It's not going to reflect well on them and we'll do everything we can to put off any sort of task force setting sail. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, in terms, of, I mean, you've talked already about the international reaction. So, let's kind of take it through to the the plan that is eventually developed, because the French, the Brits, and the Israelis all end up working together on on a war plan to retake the canal and kind of create a, a fait accompli to the fait accompli that you were mentioning earlier. So what's the initial plan? Right. Well, um, first of all, it's Anglo-French, because um, uh, you mentioned the Israelis. Uh, the French... Um, so up until that point, the, the Israelis are mainly sort of seen as a sort of pariah, really, seen by the British. You know, the British have got... You need long memories to look back to the sort of final days of the mandate in Palestine and, you know, the role of of militant Israeli groups like Stern Gang. So there's no love lost between the British military uh, and the British government generally and the Israelis. Right. So that they're 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 very much kept at a distance as far as the British are concerned. But that contrasts with the with the with the French, that the French. go through a very, very rapid period of modernization of their kit, especially their aircraft, you know, uh, and um, that's very expensive and they need to sell abroad. And um, the people who are more than happy to buy their kit are the Israelis. Right? Um, and that's why historically, you know, when you look at the Israeli Air Force, you see, um, you know, Dassault Mirages and subsequent generations that the, the, the French... Israeli links were very, very close. They certainly weren't for the British and the Israelis. Um, exactly the opposite. And the British had um, various treaties to protect their um, 
Middle East allies from Israeli aggression, um, most especially Jordan. Now, there'd been a sort of because because the Jordan King, King Hussein, had sought to, you know, at least in public, distance himself from from Britain. There's been a, a, a certain sort of um, tension very recently between the Eden government and the Jordanians. But at the end of the day, the British were, um, by treaty, um, committed to protecting Jordan from, uh, from Israel. So if the British were going to go to war with anybody uh, at the start of 1956, it would be the Israelis. <laughs> um, and that led to all sorts of problems subsequently, because you know at one point there was a fear, there was a fear that the British might find themselves um, uh, in conflict with the Egyptians and with the Israelis at the same time for in in various sort of complex diplomatic games that were that that, that, that were played. But of course, as it transpired, um, the preparations continue across across the summer um the french have a, 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 a as i sort of indicated they have a permanent delegation in whitehall with liaising on the task force one of the problems of course is that um going back to at least the second world war before before that the british don't trust the french they think think that they're they're a security risk um and so just like in the in the in, in the second world war there were lots of times when they didn't tell the free french what was going on although for ver- by various means de gaulle usually did know um then similarly in 19 in 1956 they don't give the, the french a sort of full um uh uh full information until late on exactly what their what their plans are so there's a it's really problematic the anglo-french relationship but then um uh, as you get into the autumn of 19 uh, 19 um uh, 56 by which time you know you know the, the british are more and more committed to something happening because uh, uh um you know, despite well, it's actually looking like there could be a settlement at the United Nations um, in Egypt's favour. Uh, so you know, Eden is getting more and more distraught over this. Um, uh, and then suddenly, the French come up um, with this secret proposal, known only to a very small number of uh, politicians and officials, that actually the British should come over to France. And meet some interesting people in a villa in Sevres, and um, and of course those interesting people are uh, David Ben Gurion, the Israeli Prime Minister, Mushi Dayan, the sort of legendary Chief of Staff of the Israeli Defence Forces, you know. and the, and 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 um, the in two two meetings uh, in in France, uh, the first one which involved Selwyn Lloyd, the British Foreign Secretary. They come up with this plan whereby um, the Israelis will attack across the Sinai Peninsula, just as they've done previously, that they'll race across the Sinai Peninsula uh, and to, this, in, to the Suez Canal. Um, and the British and the French will um, uh, uh, release an ultimatum. And that ultimatum is that um, both forces the Egyptians on the Suez Canal ready to defend uh, their sovereignty and of course don't forget at this point the Egyptians have already the, the Israeli was will have occupied a large part of Israel because they've occupied the Sinai Sinai Peninsula and the Israelis will they must both pull back so, you know, significant difference for a distance from this from the canal you know to create if you like a neutral zone and um, because if the Israelis pull back then they're just pulling back from further into territory they've already crossed from Israel. Um, if the Egyptians pull back, they're pull, pulling back within their own territory. You know. So they, they, you know, it's clear that this will be unacceptable to the to, to Nasser. It would be a humiliation. Why would he do that? You know. So it's you know they're bound to provoke crosses. So what the British and the French say that if you don't intervene within within the deadline, then we will intervene as a peace. You know, peacekeeping force, Anglo-French peacekeeping force to to regain control of the, of the Suez Canal because it's bound to be threatened by all of this. And the other thing, of course, which the as British in particular have been hammering at throughout the summer 
but convincing nobody is that the Egyptians are incapable of running the canal. Whereas the Egyptians clearly are capable of running the canal, so then they have to add a rider. Well, they're un- incapable of running the canal in a in a military situation, so that's why we need to get back there. You know, so that's that's the idea, right? So, of course, everything has to be timed perfectly, um, particularly the dispatch of the task force from Malta and it meeting up with French ships. Everything has to be timed so it looks to the wider world that the British really and the French really are intervening, that they, you know, so um, what you can't have is a task force that's um, that's dispatched, then your ultimatum is released, and then you say, well, we're going to, you know, but actually your task force already there. So it's all done under dead of night and secrecy, and the task force do leave Malta before the deadline period is up. And this, of course, by, by now, we're into October um, and November 1956. And, um, and it's right at the point where the, the, the clearly could have been a settlement um, agreed at the United Nations. And Lloyd George, David, uh, sorry, Lloyd George, Selwyn Lloyd is, um, is, is brought back from, uh, from New York. Um, and as I say, he becomes involved in this. So the task, for, the task force is, is dispatched um and the uh uh so the, the 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 french troops come from algeria so these are as i said earlier um, not the sort of people you'd want to sort of um, bump into late on a saturday night right okay. so they're they're the veterans of of, of, of years fighting in china culminating in dmb and foo they've now spent the last couple of years in algeria fighting the FLN. So these are really tough cookies who, you know, they they jump out of aircraft at 400 feet and all this sort of stuff, you know? Uh, and they land in Port Fuad, which is the, the, the port of the, uh, which is often forgotten on the east bank of, of the Suez Canal. And then the British, they, um, the, the, the Marines come off from um, aircraft carriers. So it's the first airborne assault and Matt Batten's particularly proud of that because he, you know, he's a sort of pioneer of this. And the and para uh, and and and, and uh, uh, parachute regiment, um, paratroopers land at uh, Port uh, um, Port Side Airport and then have to fight their way into into the town. So what it boils down to is that the French take Port Fouad very very quickly, and it takes much longer for the British. And then because the French are so ruthless. They don't really have any trouble in Port Fuad um, uh, because they're as brutal and as violent as they are in Algeria. Whereas the British try to, because they're very aware of their sort of image, they try to maintain at least a degree of sort of order and, and control. And then they wait to go down. The idea then is that they'll make their way down to Ismailia and on to take control or regain control of the of the canal zone. And the, and the French are really waiting to go. But of course, meanwhile, <laughs> the Americans are intervening. So, and, you know, forget about special relationships. <laughs> First of all, they, um, uh, they're, they're, they're responsible for the Security Council and, and, uh, 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 where the where it's vetoed, but then crucially within the General Assembly, where a motion of condemning Anglo-French intervention is condemned. The Americans are behind this all the way. They support it. Um, uh, so there's that. But they're also putting heavy financial pressure on the on the British. Right. So there's a run on the pound. Reserves are just you know draining away. You know, it's a it's a major economic crisis, and what the French, what the what the British say, sorry, what the Americans say to the British is, look, you know, if you if you agree to a ceasefire, if you agree to a, a, a United Nations peacekeeping force coming in, if you agree to withdraw your forces, then we will do all we can to support Sterling. We will give you financial support. We'll end the crisis and. You know, uh, hopefully a degree of normality can 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 be restored. Uh, and the British in in, in the, the Egypt committee, the, the, the appropriate uh, cabinet committee 
eventually recognize that they've got no choice. Right? So the irony of this is the person who's been the most hawkish in Eden's cabinet is Harold Macmillan, um, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and as Harold Wilson once famously said of Macmillan, first in, first out, because he's been the person who's been most um, uh, uh, vocal in calling for military intervention, and he's the person who produces the reality check for the rest of the of the cabinet committee and the cabinet as a whole and says we we got to we we have no choice we have to agree to what the americans say so at that point eden picks up the telephone calls guimole and says we've accepted um, you know american um terms for a united nations intervention uh, a ceasefire and you know an eventual withdrawal of forces and you're going to have to do the same what and is the, French... the public response to all of this well uh <laughs> that's a really really good question because um the the in britain and in france there's um there's a hard there's um uh, a considerable degree of support so you know attention today tends to focus on um, famous sort of demonstrations like the speech that an Aaron Bevan gave in um, Trafalgar Square, which is very powerful and very funny. Um, uh, but actually, across the country as a whole, there was a there was a until very late on, there was a surprising degree of support for British intervention. You know, rally around the flag and our boys and all this sort of thing. It's only right towards the end, uh, particularly of course after the Labour Party comes out. Um, uh, strongly in opposition uh, that um, the opinion begins to shift quite significantly. So there's a famous television broadcast that Eden uh, makes on the eve of British intervention. I'm a man of peace. I've always been a man of peace. Nice. And, and then justified action. And Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the Labour Party, demands a, a right of response. And it's powerful from Gateskill because in the first instance, he was quite supportive of government sort of indignation at the fact that the canal zone had been taken out, the canal had been taken over. But by this point, he's heavily opposed to military intervention. And Gateskill makes a very forceful speech. Um, and so there's no equivocation, there's no division in the Labour Party now. And... or. Um, and uh, there's a, also a famous intervention in the press on a Sunday from the Observer, um, where the Observer comes out against the grain of most of the British press, uh, powerfully opposed to opposition. And while in the short term the Observer circulation dropped, it's now regarded as being, uh, again, an important intervention in Fleet Street and that began to send signals of the way in which, um, you know, uh, uh, opinion would begin to shift. Um, in France, uh, it didn't. In France, there remained uh, um, uh, huge indignation. And then now, of course, the target is as much perfidious Albion as it is uh, the Egyptians, that the French eventually are, have no option but to pull out. But they blame it all on uh, the British and um, and. There are consequences of that, really important consequences post uh, after Suez for um, British and French foreign policy, foreign policy. And we might want to come back to that in a moment or two. So you've kind of touched on already that this doesn't go down particularly well globally, not least with the Americans and the run on the pound. Is there any indication that the British and the French had kind of thought about how the international community was going to respond before going in because you've got to think you know Eden three times a foreign secretary surely he should have had a better handle on this yeah well that's a really good question and within the foreign office there's clearly um uh, a, a, a considerable groundswell of opinion that's opposed to this right? um and a significant number of very senior uh, officials contemplate resignation um but are under pressure often from from opponents of government policy you know, outside Whitehall not to do so, and even more so than um, 
within the, the uh, colonial office, the Commonwealth office, that um, uh, um, because they recognise that the, the biggest damage to Britain is within the Commonwealth. And, you know, there's much as meanings in Pakistan uh, leaving the Commonwealth. You know, later, of course, Pakistan does leave the Commonwealth temporarily. And, and, in, and in India, Nero is very, very vocal. And, of course, with the, the, the non-aligned group, which is effectively led by Tito and by in Yugoslavia and by Nero in India. It's a very, very, by this stage, you know, it's a very powerful sort of global force. Um, and, you know, um, whole, uh, wholeheartedly condemnatory of what appears to be, you know, another example of imperial, imperialist aggression by, by the British British. So, so, um, in terms of global opinion, um, the, the British and French really suffer um it's only as i said earlier only the 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 the, the very the britain's closest allies in the commonwealth um australia and and uh, and new zealand um the, the canadians as you might expect are opposed to it you know hey can't you guys talk about it you know sort itself out you know so the canadians are are, are opposed uh, to it the Australians very very vocal, but within the Australian government, there's deep divisions. But that's another story. So, how does the Suez crisis end, and what's the longer term fallout? Okay, well, as I say, it, there is a there is a ceasefire, <laughs> uh, and um, then uh, of course this is fine for the Egyptians because the Egyptians are, are going to you know, maintain their control of the canal. There is an issue by now with ships that have been sunk in the canal. Um, and, um, Mountbatten is in his element at this point because he, uh, he, you know, he feels vindicated insofar as he said all along to Eden that the Commonwealth, um, would, you know, on the whole would be, would be opposed to this. Uh, so he's sort of feeling sort of smug in that respect. But at the same time, the, uh, the Navy has come out of this sort of just purely in military terms, rather well. So one of one of the, what, one of the things which they, which they managed to survive was um, um, remarkable aggression by the American Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean as the task force had made it to uh, uh, had made its way to Egypt. And for various, there were various other aspects where the Navy and the Marines had come out of this as well. So he's quite sort of feeling quite quite smug about this. And at this point, Mountbatten says, "Well." Uh, to Eden, tell the Americans and the UN that we, the Royal Navy, have the re- requisite expertise to clear the canal. <laughs> well, that doesn't go down too well with the Americans or with the United Nations. You know, they say, hold on a minute, let's get this straight. You are the guys who create this crisis, um, and you're the people who, in effect, make the me- have made the mess, and now you're saying you'd like all the glory of being seen responsible for clearing it. No. You know, the United Nations will take responsibility for this. So, you know, just all you need to do is leave. Leave as soon as you can. So the British do leave and they leave at night because they're very worried about being, you know, marching out and being attacked by Egyptians or whatever. So the British leave uh, over at night. The French um, are appalled by this. uh, And um, so, as you might expect, they leave with the Marseilles blazing and the flags unfurled and a military parade and all the rest of it. Um, they're used to getting humiliated, aren't they? Well, no, these people aren't. No, as you see, these people aren't. And yeah. that's one of the great myths. That's, you're falling into the British myth about the French No, no, it's not. Don't ruin it for they're me. They're not. They're not <laughs> at all. Because, you know, one thing you say about Indochina is, okay, so it ended... Um, Largely because of one spectacularly inept general, Navarre, it ended in, in catastrophe at Dien Bien Phu. But the other question you have to ask is, why, why did it last for so long? And actually, French counterinsurgency techniques, and, you know, let's not defend these in any way, because they're extraordinarily brutal, were actually very successful. Um, so it's just that the Viet Minh were even more successful in the end, right? Um, and back in, they go back to Algeria, and... Um, the, again, 
uh, the FLN don't technically win the war. They just create a situation where it drags on for so long that they know the, the, they're a bit like NASA, play the long game, you know. And in fact, what happens was that the French go back to Algeria, Algeria, and then you get the very famous Battle of Algiers. And if you've ever seen the Pontecorvo's magnificent film, you will sort of know, if you, and if you haven't seen it, you should do, that actually... The, it's it's incredibly important in 1957 the struggle between the Algerians and uh, and the French and technically the French win by you know they they secure control of Algiers but it's the classic case of you win the battle but you lose the war right so that's what happens for the French they go back and the other thing as far as the French are concerned and this is the big con- contrast between the French and the British is that the French. And this is before de Gaulle comes to power. So we're still in the Fourth Republic. Right? The French say never again, never again. OK, we're not going to be dependent on the Americans. <laughs> OK, so, you know, people associate the French independent nuclear deterrent with de Gaulle, the force de fire. But in fact, it, it, it's before de Gaulle comes to power. And it's the French socialist prime minister, Guy Mollet, who, um, uh, who initiates the, the nuclear, the nuclear program. And then, and then the Fifth Republic take it over, uh, and reinforce that um, deep suspicion of the Americans. So that's, that's the path the French are going on. From now on, um, you know, we're on our own and we won't, we certainly won't be dependent upon the, um, uh, upon the Americans. And the um, uh, uh, but the British do exactly the opposite. And Matt Batten's really important here because the British recognise um, that they have to restore uh, Anglo-American relations uh, as speedily as possible. Uh, and of course, they have the advantage of the Eisenhower being in uh, in office in in the White House. So they play on the um you know the legacy of the war these are all people who obviously became very close to each other in the course of the war so macmillan who succeeds eden in january 1957 his priority in terms of foreign policy is restoring relations with eisenhower and macmillan and eisenhower have been very close in the mediterranean before eisenhower went back to oversee operation overlord so they're very very close and of course someone who's during the war and subsequently proved brilliant at you know, massaging American egos as well as his own and shaking hands and working the room is Mountbatten. So Mountbatten, um, even before the crisis, back from almost the minute he becomes becomes first sea lord, recognised that the future for the submarine service is nuclear. And so he's already working with the sort of uh, shakers and movers in the United States Navy, people like Admiral Rickover, the sort of father of American nuclear uh, submarines, to um, uh, to um, uh, secure technology, so American technology, to uh, build nuclear-powered uh, submarines, and you know, following in the wake, literally in the wake of the first American submarine, the Nautilus, yeah, to build a, build a British equivalent. Uh, now that. Later, of course, expands into the whole question about the independent nuclear deterrent and that being submarine based. But at that point, that's for the future, because still in 1956, 1957, it's based on a V-bomb of force. Right? So we might be needing American nuclear technology to, go, to do with warheads and things like that. But at this point, it's still largely a British independent, genuinely independent nuclear deterrent force. So, you know, looking to the Navy, that's going to come in the future. But looking to the Americans in terms of actually nuclear propulsion, that's absolutely crucial. And looking to the Americans in, you know, all sorts of other areas of military and diplomatic collaboration, because, of course, the Cold War is still on. That's crucial. So, you know, if you like, remaking this ostensibly special relationship special is the absolute priority. So that's, as I say, in stark contrast to the French. Adrian, this is an absolute tour de force. It always is whenever we, we speak to you on a, a topic. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Yeah, thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Alex.
Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.